0: Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm your host, Doug Stewart, and I am joined by Jack Lloyd, who is a Libertarian voluntarist. He has promoted the Liberty Message for over 15 years. He has a BS in public relations with a business concentration and a juris doctor. He's worked as a juvenile defense attorney and as a government school teacher, but now he works as a producer, making music, comic books, educational videos, and memes for a variety of outlets from The Philosopher to Voluntarist, the comic book series. Jack, thanks for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure, Doug. I'm, I'm happy to be here. So you've been promoting your book, The Definitive Guide to Libertarian Voluntarism, which, by the way, has just a really great cover. I want everybody to... I wish we were doing this one on video because I could hold the book up and say, look at how awesome this cover is. It's, you know, it's the black and gold and it's got some key figures on the front. And I enjoyed your book. And it's actually very accessible, very similar to Faith Seeking Freedom, which is LCI's book about libertarianism. So I want to start off a little bit with what is libertarian voluntarism? Is that just another word so that people like you know will keep talking to you when you're in an elevator? Or is there something uniquely different about that from like what we typically think of as libertarianism?
1: Sure. So with libertarian voluntarism, I know it's a lot to say. <laughs> a lot of syllables there. A lot of syllables. A lot of syllables, but at least it gets to a very specific end. And that is the idea that libertarianism is chiefly... Revolving around property rights issues. We're talking about the nature of property rights and establishing those things and, you know, kind of understanding self ownership and homesteading norms and and all that kind of thing. Whereas I think of voluntarism as the consent ethics part, dealing with how people make manifest consent and have peaceful relations through consent. And I would say that voluntarism on its own, a lot of people might not necessarily stick with the libertarian, you know, kind of modern property rights theory. Some might consider themselves and socks, anarcho-socialists or anarcho-communists, even though they say they're into voluntary relations. But I'd like to distinguish from them specifically, which is yeah. where the libertarian part comes in. And I don't apologize for how many syllables <laughs> you have to use to say it because I just think it's important and it also sparks some good conversations about those topics.
0: Yeah, your sort of tagline could be unapologetically multisyllabic. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I like that. That's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> which which compounds the problem, I suppose, if people are right. upset about it. <laughs> so you just use the word Ansoc, anarcho-socialist. I have to ask, as maybe a little bit of a detour, I don't understand how anarcho-socialism could even work because it seems to me that like socialism is status by design or by by definition. Do you know like what's their angle on that? Sure. So when it comes to
1: socialism and thinking about what your typical socialist and that realm means by that, they're talking about, quote, unquote, <laughs> worker-owned means of production. This idea that each person should be able to engage in workplace democracy as an ethical norm, mm. that everyone gets a vote in the nature of the business and the business direction. There's some f- different flavors of you know socialism. You could say like yeah. that in terms of whether that means everything is directly voted on or whether you vote on managers. There's a lot of conflict about that. I don't care, of course, because to me, obviously, I I don't really like any of it, personally uh, and yeah. generally. But you know, th- that's what they mean there. So there are some people who will say, "Yes, I want to work in a socialist style you know, business production. That's what I want to have, yeah, and that's you know the type of economic arrangement I want." I just try to steer clear of that arrangement, you know, working or not, whatever you know someone might mean by that. It's just something that has a lot of economic problems that arise when you subject the general business direction and many key important decisions to a vote, and especially when you're trying to come up with innovative things or have clear decision rights about whether something went right right or wrong. You know, when you collectivized everybody, it it kind of distorts those signals.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I think that's kind of an often understood critique that most libertarians and those who are sort of Austrian school kind of can recognize. My question for a lot of people like that is kind of like, well, what happens if like after five years, all the employees are kind of like, yeah, we're not really into this. We just want to get a paycheck. Like, does it mean they have to vote? Like, it's almost like there's just so many problems it creates. There's always problems in any direction you go. But like, it just seems like there's so many sort of ethical conflict problems that it creates. It's like, it doesn't go very far in my mind, at least. Yeah, I mean, scaling it is always a difficulty. I think
1: of like Mondragon, which was a socialist company started by like a couple people like five people and a priest. And when they grew larger and larger, they started to have to rely on representatives more and more instead of direct democracy for everything. And then there started to, you know, be complaints that the representatives weren't representing everybody as well in certain, you know, subdivisions. And, you know, they're in it for themselves, of course. But you know, it's something that gets very difficult the further. And more complex you get with a business, more locations, more products, it gets very difficult to do direct democracy meaningfully and get anything done. Yeah,
0: Yeah. So this is similar to anarcho-capitalism, right? Libertarian voluntarism. Sorry, I'm switching the question a little bit. We were talking about anarcho-socialism. Libertarian voluntarism is very similar to anarcho-capitalism. I mean, is that fair to say or is it somewhat distinct? Definitely. Some people could readily substitute those Terms, you know, anarcho capitalism,
1: libertarian voluntarism. I think I chose libertarian voluntarism over anarcho capitalism just because I think that those terms really have a greater independent understanding and kind of less negative association. You know, capitalism, I'm always deconstructing things about that from Marxist. Mm. Anarchy has a lot of negative connotations for people. So libertarian voluntarism to me had. I guess you could say less preconceived biases coming to the table, more potential for intrigue and more intellectual groundwork to be made, you know, for those things being brought together philosophically for me.
0: Okay. So then what are the foundational axioms or principles of libertarian voluntarism? Sure. So it's rooted
1: in both property rights, starting with self-ownership for the libertarian side. So it's the idea that each person owns themselves. In other words, you as the person occupying your body has the highest right and claim to the property right that is your body against all others. And then voluntarism here is this idea of trying to maximize consent and minimize the initiation of force, you know, ultimately leading, you know, to violence. And that's done by trying to look for opportunities for consent. That is obviously looking to get people to agree with you before doing any types of deals or trades or touching of other people's bodies and properties and things like that. So the closer we get to the respect of property rights through consent, the closer we are getting to a libertarian, voluntarist future. How far do we have to go? A lot in, in terms of where you know we're at right now, because by and large, the world is currently you know, ruled by a number of different people call themselves the state or government, and they mm-hmm. are claiming to own people by virtue of their birth, saying that yes. they have a higher right of claim to everyone's body and property, even though they're just other human beings on this planet, born to it all the same, naked and everything, suddenly they're magically uh, able to do things that we otherwise as individuals would be seen as criminal to do, (laughs) you know, to take from your neighbor, even if you're giving it to someone who's homeless or trying to help out someone in need. If you were to just go into your neighbor's wallet and take money and give it to that person, you'd be considered a thief. But when the government does it by passing legislation, they just call that, you know, public policy yeah. or welfareism and so forth. So it's a two-tier, apartheid system of ethics that we have around the world and the governments of the world have, by and large, indoctrinated people to believe in that authority through the use of mass compulsory schooling, where young people's wills are basically broken down to become subsumed and subservient to those who are in political and economic power, where they're told that they must do certain things at certain times, at the tune of a bell, mm, yeah. every day, you know, for... 180 plus calendar days. And then they're, you know, stigmatized. They're given grades for how compliant they are. So the government has done a lot to kind of brainwash young people into thinking that central planning is needed for their lives. Otherwise, they'll be stupid or
0: incompetent or whatever label they're going to yeah. you know, throw in you yeah. if you are not in
1: that system.
0: <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> you know, as you were referring to libertarian voluntarism as a term that has less baggage, that's my terminology, I guess, than anarcho and capitalism, because we're always deconstructing those and correcting things. And, you know, with the exception of libertarian voluntarism, like who can really say anything negative about that? And you just used a phrase, ethical apartheid. Mm -hmm. Is that the phrase you use, I think? And I'm thinking, wow, that's a really important way to distinguish a very key point that essentially agents of the state are permitted legally to operate under a different system of ethics than the average person by virtue of whatever legitimacy they assume themselves to have now you and i know that it's at the force of a gun and there's a long you know history of that and so it's there's different you know ways people can describe what that is how much time do you spend i'm really interested in the question of rhetoric and marketing when it comes to maximizing the reach of our ideas. Because Mm -hmm. we can call ourselves a handful of things. I know Jeffrey Tucker, like 10 years ago, talked a lot about this, about what do we call ourselves? How do we market this? How do we talk about this? And I think it somewhat depends on who you're talking to. But how have you, other other than using the term libertarian voluntarism, used conversation and rhetoric in a way that sort of maximizes your reach? Sure. Well, for me, the core issue is that most people are in a
1: kind of trauma-induced reactivity. So by and large, most people have gone to some form of compulsory schooling where they're you know, told what to do and what to learn hour by hour for you know, 12, 13 years. And this is very traumatizing for people. And a lot of their understandings of the world are built upon mantras and idioms and just repeated assertions that take place, starting with the most repeated assertion, of course, in America is the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag, which starts off the school day, you know, every day. So a lot of people have these traumatic shaming complexes that control their thoughts and they'll respond to different things that might be considered you know, radical ideas with triggering. They'll get be like, oh what, you know, what do you mean, no taxes? You know, who will build the roads and all this of stuff, right? they have this kind of reflexive response that's been programmed into them. So Mm -hmm. getting people out of that, for the most part, from what I've seen, requires radical ideas and radical statements. And the reason why is that you have to have something that's so jarring and so shocking that it causes someone to challenge themselves and to rethink what they know. Because if it's something that's just kind of bland or just like, hey, it'd be really great if the government lowered taxes, right? It's not really that interesting or shocking to their, Programming and their programming will ignore it, just kind of you know, blot it out readily. Whereas something that's so extremely against their programming will cause a system shock. And psychologically, what that means is that they'll suddenly come to their reactions, but they won't really have the reasoning fleshed out. A lot of people are not philosophical in that way. Schooling certainly doesn't help with that. They're not you know doing much in terms of learning about how to think with inductive and deductive reasoning and doing analysis of statistics and framing biases cognitive biases and things like that so they're in this kind of fight or flight mode when they get challenged and it, so it's this opportunity there to challenge them and suddenly they're you know going to be coming up short on a lot of these answers and it's an opportunity to really plant those seeds right in the moments of their reactivity is where you can plant seeds and for anybody else who's watching, whether they're reading a Facebook thread or YouTube comments or overhearing a conversation, it's an opportunity for them, if they're not in the reactive mode, to hear someone's ethical reasoning and their arguments against this reactivity, which is itself a valuable tool. You know, being able to explain things to people because you've thought about it, thought about the economics, thought about the ethics and morality of what government does versus, you know, what they hold you to a standard do can cause some people to sink on the outside. So for me, one of the ways that I was really adamant about doing that when it was a contentious time to do so, because people were questioning whether it was a good idea to do, was when I created the viral taxation stuff meme trend under Anarchy Ball. So I kind of kicked that off uh, big time with a little, little meme magic, you could say. You know, putting out the seven things every kid must hear thing and with these nice things that you'd say to kids, yeah. like, I love you, whatever, you know, having taxation stuff in there and, and then yeah. inspiring a bunch of people to follow along that kind of thing with that. So, you know, my advocacy by and large, I always start with radical stuff. I start with like abolish the FBI or IRS or taxation stuff, or whatever. I always start with the radical and then lead that into the philosophical where I can actually talk about the specifics of what someone's doing and what the government's doing, (laughs) and then having them kind of self-reflect about the nature of the state versus what they hold themselves to in terms of ethical standards.
0: Yeah, yeah. I've been thinking a lot about whether or not it's important to reach out in a radical way or tailor a message or maybe even temper a message so that it has a broader appeal. And there's obviously a huge, I don't want to call it a split, although it is a split in thinking. There's a divergence, I think, right now in the broader libertarian movement to where the messaging of the LP was, you know, sort of very bland and -hmm. neutral and not provocative whatsoever, which, you know, doesn't even seem libertarian in spirit at all. And I'm not making a comment particularly about the LP, but that's been the, that's been the accusation. And honestly, it's probably, you know, there's probably a lot of truth to that. At the same time, there's a lot of some of the radical statements that people make that don't attract another person because they're like, yeah, I can't go that far. Like, what do you mean abolish the IRS? Like, well, we got to have taxes. And so people aren't even willing to entertain that kind of thing. And so is there a way to be radical yet still attract the kind of person who would be turned off by some of the really radical stuff, such as, you know, truly abolishing all of these things? Like, you know, it's one thing to say, hey, we need to, you know, reduce the tax rate by a little bit. That's not very radical in any sense whatsoever. School choice is pretty radical right now. It's happening, and it's still a good example of a fairly radical movement. Anyway, I just want to get your thoughts on you know, how radical do we have to be? Sure. Well, I would say, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the
1: other. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. Have
0: you ever heard that one before? Hmm. I want to be sarcastic and say, no, that's new one. <laughs> <laughs> mm. Right. So I like that just fun
1: reference here, Revelation 3 15 to 16. If we're going to, you know, be on the LCI uh, podcast, we'll reference that. So it's this idea that a message is either being really hot and burning you know under people's butts to get them inspired or is being really cool and refreshing and inspiring like right? these types of messages really get people motivated but when you're kind of lukewarm with your messaging it doesn't really inspire anything it's neither cooling and refreshing and healing it's neither you know motivating and like getting you like angered and inspired to move to action right so when it comes to strong messaging you need something that is going to activate someone's emotions in a way that gets them thinking about it. Because that's what it boils down to is we want people actually taking these principles and challenging them in ways they've never challenged themselves before and to start thinking about the nature of themselves and others and what makes right or wrong and why. And you just don't get that if you have kind of middle road statements. You need to have Statements at least get people interested. Whether it is something that might be you know seemingly you know quote, quote, offensive to someone who is very status, or it could be something that is inspiring. It could be refreshing. It could be something that you know gets people to really feel uplifted, right? It could be a you know, word of encouragement kind of thing. But you need something that's going to hit one of those emotions, whether it's you know, fear, love, anger, sadness, something that really has a strong emotional tie to it that will, you know, will trigger an emotion that starts that process. Because... Otherwise, people are are normally so traumatized that they're kind of emotionally walled off to these topics. They have those defense mechanisms that come up in terms of, you know, just self-talk. Mm. That says, oh, what do you mean? You know, without taxes, we wouldn't have, you know, roads. Or what about, you know, China or whatever else is going to immediately spring up. So you need something that triggers that so you have the opportunity to have the conversation. Otherwise, you're very ignorable. Let's put it that way, to say, to say the least. You'd be a very ignorable person, organization, or whatever, If you're not saying things that get people frustrated enough to engage you.
0: Okay, I can accept that. And the verse that came to my mind in in your answer there was like, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. And I feel like in some ways you've sort of explained how we could be both in that way. So anyway, yeah, you know, I'm just reflecting on your, your answer there. I feel like that is really sufficient to energize people who want to have a message. You know, I have personally not spoken up at times when I'm in a group or whatever, because I'm just like, I don't want to get into this because I know (laughs) that like I'm gonna, now they're gonna all look at me like I've got six heads, you know, like the beast in Revelation, since we're sticking to the Revelation, I guess. But um, (laughs) so there's that. On the other hand, like I'm also very motivated to challenge people and give that hot message, right? Rather than something that's, you know, refreshing. So yeah, no, that's good. So here's a question I'm going to ask in a sort of a humorous way, but like, why is it that we can't convince the rest of the mammals to abide by the non-aggression principle? <laughs> sure, so I do touch on uh, animals and the concept
1: of animal rights in my book. So the animal and animal rights issue can be tough for people to navigate because when it comes to certain animals, at least, there's animals that share a lot of human attributes, right? You think of, domesticated dogs or cats that very commonly people adore and love and, you know, feel almost a kinship with them, even with them more than many people. But when we're talking about building ethical philosophy and trying to make something that's consistent, where you're able to consistently uphold these principles across all actors, you can't meaningfully do that with animals by and large. And the reason why is that pretty much every single animal that we know of and we're not talking, of course, about humans here, just you know, other types of mammals and other creatures like that. They don't have the ability to meaningfully not infringe upon the physical and bodily property rights of other creatures. So even the ones that are herbivores are going to inherently be stepping on other creatures you know, as they walk across the pasture like cows, they're going to disrupt other creatures' nests and homes and things like that. It's so rampant, it's kind of ridiculous, right? Animals just Poop wherever <laughs> they pee, wherever you know. You go out, you wash your car, you park your parking car back, and then the pigeon looks down with a mm. smile and, and relieves himself.
0: So you can't really doesn't have, even look down, man. Right? He just, <laughs> does it? Yeah.
1: They're just waiting for you to come back after you just wash your car, right? So, so it, it's not a standard that can be meaningfully held against animals in that way. And you know, by and large, of course, carnivorous animals would be engaged in violating the bodies of other animals just to live, and. You know, you couldn't have that type of consistent application with them without basically having to wipe out entire species of of creatures. So some will try to say, "Well, you know, it's an exception for them that you know carnivores can eat." I'm like, "Well, by that logic, then you know why are they getting a special exemption if I want to genetically become dependent on meat? Why am I not allowed to do that, but they are? Right? Or a fun one too." Someone said, huh, I wonder if you, know, you could just get a dog to like kill for you and then you share in the meat. Because it's like, oh, okay, if the dog you know, kills the bear or whatever the fox, then you can now share in the meat because you had a hunting dog that did it for you instead. I mean, it, it just it creates all these you know, really silly, again, apartheid, <laughs> apartheid ethical systems yeah, yeah. that doesn't really make a lot of sense. And then, of course, when people talk about, well, what about kids or people who have Alzheimer's or those with Down syndrome? I say, well, my standard is not, you know, simply based on um, an individual's ability, you know, in terms of species-wise respect. It's based on the species as a whole. Are they, at large, able to be respectful of others' consent and property rights, and can they be expected to uphold it? In other words, this idea of justice, this idea of responsibility, stems from the idea that you expect a certain living thing to not violate it, right? If, if someone what is inherently always going to violate a principle, well, then how can you expect that principle to be upheld if no matter what, everybody's always going to violate it? Like if you said mm. it's, it's unethical to breathe, well, it's like, well, everybody's going to be dead because everybody's mm. going to break it, right? So you can't have principles that inherently everyone's automatically going to you know, break. And that happens, of course, by and large with just the nature of you know carnivores you know, for the animal kingdom and for humans, it happens by and large, you know, for our biology in terms of sustaining our brain structure, the need for that dense protein, the need to create and build. Obviously, you're disrupting all kinds of different creatures, living habitats in order to even just have crops, right? When they're harvesting, you know, those machines are going through and animals get caught up in it, crushed and destroyed. You're building roads and buildings. Of course, you're destroying Living creature habitat, it used to be trees there. You're taking mm-hmm. them down, you're destroying whatever's there, you're knocking down birds' nests, corals, whatever. So it's a standard that can't be meaningfully upheld. And I say that, you know, at best, maybe a creature, you know, a single creature might be a candidate, like you had some extremely intelligent, I don't know, dolphin or dog or whatever. There might be a specific candidate, but this idea that you're going to have this ethical system be consistently applied to non-humans is just really a, an absurdity that would, if, you know, held consistently, would just eradicate, you know, all the carnivores. Yeah. And then of course, every other cow would be, you know, on trial for stepping on the frog. You know, it's mm. like, you know, it's a standard that, and for humans, again, human beings hold that standard for each other, right? If someone hits a kid with their car, they don't say, oh, well, it was an accident. All right, have a nice day. (laughs) You know what I mean? You have an investigation. You're like, oh, okay, well, it doesn't matter whether you say it's an accident. We're going to take a look at the circumstances and we're going to see what happened and why, right? But no one's going to do that for, you know, every lizard and frog and
0: hold a trial, so. Yeah. Well, and you can't actually require that other species uphold a system of justice of some kind. Like, it's not like you can't just say, oh, well, you need to abide by the non-aggression principle and we humans will adjudicate things. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's not yeah. going to work either. So... All right. We're, get, we're getting a little... It gets a little bit crazy, obviously. But in our minds, though, is this concept, as we're talking here, of you know, what do we do with the non-human environment? Right? And that's a big question that a lot of people love to tackle... A lot of people who are really into environmentalism, you know, traditional environmentalism, it's always going to be the state or big government or some sort of regulatory structure that is either dictating what can or cannot be done or putting some sort of limits on there. And there is a way, I think, that we can be environmentalists and also libertarian voluntarists. Would you agree with that? And if so, like, how would that even, what would that even look like? Sure. So for me environmentalism has different meanings
1: to different people, which is why it's one of those catchwords that, you know, you can project whatever you want onto it, like saying hope or change with Obama posters, right? You can, environmentalism, well, what does that exactly mean? Depends on the person. But I think the idea, I think that is very common among people is this idea of like pollution with specific harms to people in private properties, stuff that makes people sick or has a bunch of litter, you know, on the beach and things like that. People generally don't like those things. That that's kind of a common trope that people generally don't be like, oh yeah, I want to drive on the road and like I run into like some, you know, plastic bin or something that's just left out there, right? People don't want trash lying around everywhere that could be a problem for them. They don't want toxic chemicals that cause them to like lose their hair or whatever. So people by and large do have this at least base sense of environmentalism of just being like, oh, okay, I want to be able to live my life without having to breathe in smog or be affected by something that's going to you know, cause me to have problem, health problems or it's going to damage my property What I'm you know, just trying to go about. And those issues are mostly resolved within the realm of property rights. So where property rights come in is being able to correctly assign who's the causation for a certain discrete property rights harm, you know, who littered, you know, throwing out their trash into someone's yard or if there was a toxic chemical leaked out by a company knowing, oh, okay, they were supposed to store this safely and it leaked out and now it's affected these people. Well, we have, you know, proximate causation you know, it was their toxic chemical, a certain company, and now it's causing harm to these people. Where we would differentiate between an actual environmental problem that, you know, is a specific harm to people and just a general mass shared participation in industrialization would be things that basically everybody participates in, you know, by and large. So if you have, for example, someone claiming that CO2 is this horrible thing for the environment, well, you, you would have a problem there because pretty much everybody participates in CO2 creation, at least through breathing out. And then if not through just using anything for mass industrialization. So you can't claim that this Quote, quote, harm is happening if it's something that everybody's a part of, right? Mm-hmm. So you have to distinguish between specific things, right? A, a specific company, specific chemical, hitting specific people that not everybody is participating in. And the idea that, oh, you know, cars are harming the earth because, you know, you built a factory. It's like, okay, well, who's harming who, how, mm-hmm. and what, you know, what property rights? And so basically that, that's where that we delineate the difference between something that's true pollution, something that's, you know, actually harming people and has a discrete person or group that's harming another, you know, a specific victim, and just the idea of, well, this is just a part of a common existence. And if you want to change that, you just have to change minds, right? You have to voluntarily convince people to move away from CO2 production if that's what you wish to do. So, but, you know, that's kind of where that boils down to, you know, making that delineation.
0: Yeah. I think a lot of people could have a reaction to what you just said by worrying that there's insufficient consideration given to the sort of unnamed or the unnamable persons, in particular, the future, right? Or the future humans that we expect to be around in 50 to 100 years or so. And so the questioned or asked in a libertarian sort of way would be, you know, what obligation or what, you know, legal limits to, property or legal limits to our actions is appropriate or acceptable for us to not commit aggression against future humans. And I think that maybe that's not the best wording. That's what I can come up with right now. Again, these people don't exist, right? Like the future doesn't exist. It's not in existence. And so there are no specific humans, which we can say, hey, you know, Jeffrey Lloyd, who's the great, great grandson of Jack Lloyd, is going to be harmed if I do this action or if we as human beings do this action collectively. So what do you have to say to that potential concern that people have over the future people inhabitants of Earth?
1: Sure. Well, everything, again, boils down to property rights. So someone who's non-existing can't be said to have a harm against them when they don't exist. So at the point that they come into existence, then the question is, is what's that individual's property rights and who owes them a duty of non-aggression? So, without a specific of what the harm is, I wouldn't be able to say to any you know specific thing as to what it is that they would be owed or why I would only be able to say you know within a proximate causation that is something that you know one thing directly caused the other where there was you know a duty not to harm. I could speak to that you know in specificity, so I'm not mm-hmm. sure if you're talking about just like maybe a kid born down the road and he's He's got birth defects because maybe a company had leaked a chemical and it wasn't discovered until like 30 years Mm -hmm. later or something like that. Is that something maybe
0: in that realm? Well, that I think we've had some cases of that. And so what I'm trying to bring up in this question is more people who don't like your answer are going to say, but don't we have some sort of obligation to leave the earth better for future generations, right? Like that's the collectivist way of sort of conceptualizing. We need to leave the earth, you know, better than we found it, right? And, you know, calling up my inner Alex Epstein, we are doing that, right? Like I am on the side of what you're arguing here and I'm just, you know, being a good host and saying, hey, you know what? There are people who aren't going to be happy with that argument and there are going to be future people inhabitants of earth, right? And so we don't have names for them. They don't exist. They don't own property or whatever. But the libertarian way of conceptualizing what do we owe those other future property rights owners could be that we give them property worth our owning or like, does that make sense? Does that clarify at all? Yeah, I
1: understand what you're saying. I, I just don't believe that there's any duty to them. There's nothing owed. So no one has a property right pre-existing in the future to a specific type of world or a particular type of you know earth or a certain way. And the idea of having a better you know world, whatever, that's just a subjective generalization or abstraction. We mm-hmm. have to be very specific about what it is that someone's thinking about when they're talking about a better world because each person has different ideas of what would be best. <laughs> and many people would be like, yeah, it'd be great if I was the ruler of this world, right? Yeah, sure. So we, well, so we no, have-
0: let, me, let me clarify that particular point. That was probably misspoke there. The existence of a system of non-aggression is that owed mm-hmm. to the future, to future people.
1: Oh, well, I would say that non-aggression is just this empathetic reciprocity that people adopt. So it's mm-hmm. individually based. So the idea of adopting libertarian voluntarism is, Wholly revolving around the individual. In other words, it doesn't require you to do anything to anybody else in terms of like, oh, you have to educate them or you have to do something. It's about your own personal ethics. That said, of course, the more we move toward that idea and convince people of that, the more demonstrable peace we have because people are just respecting each other's bodies and properties more. So I would not see it as a duty that is owed on a collective level. I would just say that the individual has their own individual from you know adopting this idea duty to not initiate force against others and to respect their bodies and property so no i wouldn't say that there's anything collectively owed or anything like that i would just challenge an individual specific beliefs because mm-hmm. anybody who's speaking like that i'd be like okay well what makes right or wrong in the first place how do you know mm-hmm. how do you discern truth you know what's your basis for truth i would go to their core philosophical ideas and start to deconstruct what it even is that they think the world is and what makes right or wrong and why and how they treat others. And yeah that'd be its own can of worms, which would be fun, but you know sure.
0: Yeah <laughs> okay so <laughs> so we've we've talked about other mammals, we've talked about people not yet born. Let's talk about children who are not yet adults, right? Sure. So how do you handle the issue of children? It's a very important thing to a lot of people, obviously And even for those who don't have children, it's very, children are a protected class in a number of ways. And so, at least in people's minds, right? Like they're vulnerable. And so generally speaking, everybody cares a lot about this. And to have a completely voluntary system where adults are consenting seems like a just fine ethical system, you know, if you can get it. But what about the children? Mm -hmm. I have to say it in that tone of voice. So Jack, what about the children?
1: Sure. So when it comes to children, an important distinction that I make, you know, from Rothbard and some others is that having children doesn't mean you own them. Children are not chattel property. They're not owned by their parents. They're not like, oh yeah, you know, I own your body and stuff like that. Children are independent self-owners in that they have their own independent consciousness and their own discrete physical body to the exclusion of others. So that said, young people have not as much, you know, developed brain activity, especially prefrontal cortex activity because their bodies are going through their puberty and are developing their longer-term orientation, their bigger critical thinking skills, and so on and so forth. So parents act as a steward or guardian of children until children are able to take care of themselves. So essentially what that means is that parents have the highest stewardship or guardianship claim over children to the exclusion of others. And that ends up making a lot more sense for a lot of different other tangential issues, like the idea of adoption and stuff like that, or kids living out on their own to you know to forge their own path. Where that you know comes into play is this idea that a parent would be giving up their claim of stewardship, guardianship, if they were offering up a kid for adoption. They're no longer saying I am this kid's you know steward, mm-hmm. guardian. And then for a kid going out on their own, once they've hit a point, and I write about this in my book, saying how the typical markers of a child being ready for adulthood or more adult decisions is that they both passed early puberty and they are able to work and provide for themselves independently. These are the hallmarks of a young person who has both biologically and socially that has financially gotten to the point where they can take care of themselves and make more mature decisions. And that's not a fixed line. But for Most young people, they're not getting there typically until around 16 or so. I would say, you know, most young people don't get past their early puberty stages until, you know, in, in the 14 to 16 arena. And then on top of that, being able to demonstrate that they're able to take care of themselves independently, you know, financially working, stuff like that, you know, typically doesn't happen until at least around that arena. And this is important because when it comes to any other, you know, topic, when you're thinking about consent and someone's capacity, it's already known that just because you hit 18 doesn't mean that you're able to even consent. For example, someone with severe Down syndrome is not going to be able to consent just because they turn 18, right? Mm-hmm. They don't have the ability to make decisions on their own. They're not mentally able to process things as, you know, a regular or more normal uh, functioning adult is. Someone with Alzheimer's whose you know, memory is failing and they're not able to, you know, take care of themselves, of course, same issue. It doesn't matter that they're 80 years old. The question is their capacity. Are they able to take care of themselves, provide for themselves, and so on and so forth. So, that's kind of helps make it clear what the parent's role responsibility is there it's a negative rights one where in my opinion they don't have to provide for their kids if they don't want to it's something that is up to parents to do but conversely because it's negative rights that also means they can't deny outside help and that's something that comes into play with parents who are abandoning or who are neglectful right because that's always mm-hmm. a concern is oh what about the parent who's like not feeding their kids cuz they're strung out and i say again, they don't have a compulsion to provide for their kids, but they also can't stop others who want to help a child who's in that serious of a situation where they're being neglected, they're not feeding, they're starving, and stuff like that. And I think that that really makes the most sense ethically, because then it's not pointing a gun at parents to provide for their kids, but it's also not denying children the opportunity to be taken care of by those who are willing to step up when a parent is either... a Incapable for whatever reason, could be um, addiction issues, could be mental health issues, whatever, but it's not denying a child's ability to get help and care from others
0: when a parent is unable. Yeah, okay man, there's just like so many things we could like keep talking about. But I want to get to the question of, you know, how do we get there from here, which is a very common sort of last chapter in almost every one of these kind of books in this venue, right? It's like, well, okay, these all sound really good. But like, is there actionable steps that we can do? And you talk about something in particular, a not-for-profit philosophy and how it relates to government. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So the not-for-profit government model is this idea of
1: getting people to agree with this concept that the government should not be funded by taxation. And that's this kind of stepping stone idea that in order to move forward and out of this horrible, you know, command and control environment with the government where they can take from you no matter what and use it for all kinds of heinous things, we need to, you know, cut to the root, which is their ability to take from people by force, whether they agree with it, what they're doing with it or not. And this really helps to assuage some people's fears because it's, getting people to realize that the government can be funded and function transition based on voluntary means. And I like to point to real examples that exist now from the lottery being used for many states to fund things to fundraisers they do for the fire department and raffles and auctions and paid services like paid trainings and things like that. So I want people to think outside of coercion. And uh, think, of course, outside the state for solutions, but in the transition, think about how the government could just be funded without the use of threats and coercion and automatic takings from people at large. And if we can get to that point in changing the culture, then we're on a great step. Because at that point now, if the government's losing its monopoly on force there and they're only being funded for things you want, well, now people could also choose alternatives. And that's a big part of this is being able to have finances freed up so that if you don't really like what the governments do with it, you can at least fund an alternative in whatever arena you think is best, security or justice or you know something else with education, whatever it is. It's the idea that people should have the freedom to choose where their money goes to. And I think that the government should be no different in that. And the more we can subject the government to market forces, the more we can actually get true accountability instead of the illusion of accountability. Because just voting for someone every so many years is not exactly a accountability, <laughs> you know. Once they're in, okay, well, I get your money no matter what. I can do whatever I want, right? And then they can, you know, have their incumbency bias and you know do crony deals with the other members there. So, you know, I think that that's just to me, it's a stepping stone for people to kind of wrap their minds around what's possible for the future and to not get hung up on this idea that it's oh day one we have the government and taxes and all stuff, and day two oh okay no government no like, ah you know. So, it's just, I think that it's something that for a lot of people, they need that kind of stepping stone thinking, that stepping stone modeling to help them be like, oh, okay, I can see how we can like move toward that,
0: you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, great. So, you are pretty active online, and I want people to be able to find you online. But, oh, are there any projects in the works that you're kind of working on right now that we can be on the lookout for? And then, where can people find you? Sure. So,
1: I have nothing actively running right now in terms of a campaign or event. I think probably the next big, big thing we'll do, I'm pretty sure will be uh, starting off the Florida Man music video stuff that we're going to do at, toward the end of this year. So we're mm-hmm. going to start a campaign for that toward the end of this year. I do have a top secret project in the works. Can't talk about it. I am working okay. on the Voluntarius comic right now, which that campaign had finished a few months ago. So that's been going well. But if people want to see what I'm doing on a bunch of different things, my comic website is volcomic.com. That's V's and Victory, O L C O M I C.com, volcomic.com. You can also check out my wife's website, The Philosopher. That's a P H O instead of the I. So P H O L O, ThePhilosopher.com. You can link between those two sites to a lot of the stuff that we do. My social media stuff's everywhere. You know, I have Instagram, Facebook, Mines,
0: MeWe, Twitter, Essence, so many different places you could probably you just, just like need multiple pages on your phone just for the apps of all these sites that you're on.
1: Yeah. And I have multiple, you know, pages there too just for the profiles because I do so many different outreaches like I have the Honest Teacher page I was just doing an interview for where I help families leave the compulsory schooling paradigm by educating them on unschooling and yeah. peaceful parenting things like that. So I do a lot of different
0: things. It's hard to encapsulate it all, but you can start there. <laughs> yeah, excellent. Well, Jack, thanks for joining us to talk about these important issues and